Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, I can I can lead us back in. I just Googled inflation, so I'm good and ready. Um, <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Libby Nelson, Vox's policy editor, and I'm joined by two reporters on the Vox policy team. Rachel Cohen, senior policy reporter, and Madeline Yeo, economic policy reporter. It's a policy team takeover. Hi, all. Hey. Hello. We're going to do something a little different this week. It's been a very busy summer in the policy world. So instead of a long conversation about one topic, we're going to talk about three of the biggest things going on lately. We're starting with President Biden's recently announced student loan forgiveness program. What's going on with the economy? What's going on with inflation? And we'll wrap up with the start of what might be the first sort of semi-quasi-normal school year since the COVID pandemic began and what that means. We're going to start with loan forgiveness. I am thrilled to be here talking about this with both of you. Um, I was a higher education reporter for many years. I've been on the weeds before talking, like, exactly about this. Um, I would like to thank, you know, whatever news gods timed this really perfectly for our episode this week. Um, But President Biden announced last week that the federal government will forgive $10,000 worth of loans for any borrower with a household income under $125,000 and $20,000 worth of loans for anyone who received a Pell Grant, um, which is the main federal program for low-income students, while they were in college. This is really the culmination of, in some ways, a decade of building pressure um, around student loans and around student debt but also the fulfillment more specifically of a campaign promise that that Biden made on the trail. And given that student loans have been paused uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, it also was a really long-awaited announcement. And of course, it immediately uh, didn't make anybody totally happy. Some people think it's not generous enough. Some people think it's too generous. Some people are worried about the effect that it might have on inflation. Um, So I'm really thrilled to, to have the opportunity to talk about all of those angles. But I'm going to start with just a little bit of background on on what we know about who might be affected and how. The income limits mean that you will have to apply, most people will have to apply for this program. And they're meant to make it more progressive, to give more of the help to people, you know, who aren't wealthy doctors or lawyers. But other than that, it's, I would say, surprisingly sort of open-ended and generous. It applies to any federal loan. That means it applies to graduate school loans. It applies to loans that parents take out on behalf of their kids. It applies to any loan that has been made, like, 
prior to the start of this month, August 2022. So it means that there are students in school now who are going to get some kind of break. I do think an important thing to think about as we think about the effects of this program is that we've been in this very weird space on student loans for the last two years. Functionally, nobody has had to make a payment since the beginning of the pandemic more than two years ago. So what we're seeing is a little different than what might be if people were accustomed to, you know, having that taken out of their budget every month. Though, of course, they've always had the option to continue paying. Um, Presumably, most people haven't. So one of the biggest things that also has changed during the Biden administration is that we've gone from a place where the concern was that the economy was was moving too slowly to the concern that the economy is too hot, that inflation is running too high, that prices are going up. I personally always thought that if student loan forgiveness happened, I'll be honest about this, it would be as some form of stimulus. We would be in some kind of economic downturn. It could be justified as a stimulative program. We're in a really different situation right now. And Maddie, I know you've been talking to some economists about what this might mean, and there's no real consensus, but what have you learned so far? It's sort of unknown right now. I mean, it seems like um, based on recent analyses, the impact on inflation would be quite minor, but it really just depends on how people's spending habits change. So if people experiencing debt relief significantly increase their spending because they have less debt to pay off, then they may be more likely to spend on other things like new cars or couches or other goods or services. Um, so having less debt frees up a portion of their budgets. Um, but it still remains to be seen how much this would actually increase spending. I mean, it's not like people are getting, you know, checks in the mail or an increase in their permanent income. So just because they have less debt doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, you know, significantly buy a lot more. So it really depends on that. Some economists also say that the impact on inflation could be quite small because most Americans just don't have federal student loan debt. So that is also a factor. I think something that I wonder about when we're talking about whether it's going to affect inflation or increase spending is, you know, during the pandemic, there was obviously people were at home, they were buying lots of things because they couldn't go out to the movies or concerts. And then the narrative about supply chains, and we all were ordering too many cars or too many sofas. But we didn't have inflation then. And so today we're in this situation where people are spending less on things because it's harder to afford things like rent is still up and groceries are still up. And so they just feel this uncomfortable, icky moral question where like, oh, if we ease up people's debt payments and they could spend more, obviously, if it's like spending on vacations, it's easier to be like, "Mm, maybe that's bad. But if it's like so it's easier for them to afford groceries, that seems like a good thing. But obviously, we talk about it like it's a bad thing. And so I guess my question is, Are economists making any sort of distinctions in what kind of spending might be happening or good or bad? Like if people spend more on groceries, (laughs) is that good or is that do we want people to be pulling back on spending everywhere to bring down inflation? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a great answer for you. But I mean, I did talk to an economist yesterday at the Roosevelt Institute who was saying that, you know, this is a good thing because a lot of especially lower income households are um, really struggling to deal with high inflation right now. They're struggling to deal with essentials like, um, you know, affording essentials like groceries and rent. Um, So it is a good thing for them. But I, I don't think that most economists that I've talked to have really 
differentiated. They just said broadly that, Mm -hmm. you know, if people have less debt, then they can afford to spend more. Yeah, I feel like this is almost sort of a question of the, like, wage price spiral of, like, if you have more money, then prices will go higher, and then you need more money because prices are higher. But it's not in the context that we usually talk about it, which is employers and sort of how they respond to inflation. I do think, though, this is a a challenge for a few parts of sort of the progressive agenda as we're thinking about it. I mean, not to to yank the child tax credit in here, but that is when you're talking about literally like making money available to people, that's what that does. And it's really interesting to me how much the policymaking environment has shifted even in a year based on what's going on with the underlying economic conditions. Libby, I had a, a question just from your intro on student loans. And when you mentioned in the beginning that because it's income restricted, people have to apply I guess I was curious, like, is it possible to make it income restrictive and not make people have to apply? Because I feel like what we've learned from so many programs is that making people apply adds such a barrier for so many people. And I wonder if it seems like following the pandemic where we showed we can just send checks to everyone eligible. I wonder why the Biden administration can't just sort of cancel it for everyone eligible and sort of eliminate the application process that feels like we don't necessarily have it for all our programs, but maybe there's some sort of administrative thing or... Oh boy, is there an administrative (laughs) thing? Um, This is really, this has given me a chance to talk about one of the Edwong's favorite (laughs) things. I'm so excited. Um, (laughs) There is actually, like, it seems very easy. It's like, okay, so the government obviously knows who's taking out student loans and the government obviously knows what your income is or something's very wrong at the IRS or the education department if they don't have all of that information. Why can't they just put it together? And the answer is because there is literally a federal ban on doing that. The education department and education researchers for a long time have wanted what's called a student unit record system, which basically tracks like individual level data from college and beyond. So you could, you know, link where someone went to school, what they majored in, to, you know, their tax returns 10 years later. Obviously, for people who look at, like, the idea that you can look at the value of an education based on some part in wages, like, this is the holy grail. Like, one of the reasons that conversation is is always kind of abstract is, like, we don't have that information. There's a lot of private companies that's like, oh, uh. looking at Glassdoor salaries and looking, you know, looking at, like, who majored in what, but we don't have that. I didn't expect this to come up in, like, a totally different context, but it, it really does. So the education department says for about 8 million people, they are going to be able to do this automatically. I don't know who that is, but I'm going to rampantly speculate here that it's probably people who are already enrolled in an income-driven repayment system where they are making their payments based on their income because they've already had to certify their income with the department in order to do that. But it's it's a really serious problem. You know, one thing that um, Kevin Carey, who wrote about this for Vox, pointed out that I think is really astute and unfortunate is – the people who are going to be most helped in the really, you know, traditional sense by this, a lot of them are people who are not who we think of when we think of student loan debtors. Um, they're people who went to a for-profit college or community college, dropped out, maybe weren't, in, you know, enrolled in a four-year degree program. So they're not getting that college wage premium because they didn't finish, but they still have to pay off their debt. A lot of times the amount they owe is very small. Unfortunately, like, the people who are usually best at navigating bureaucracy and filling out paperwork and, you know, being linked into networks that will tell you, like, hey, you could get your student loans forgiven. You need to, like, go on the website um, tend to be people who are college educated. So one question I would love an answer to and haven't seen much on yet is 
is there going to be any outreach to people? You know, they obviously know who's, uh, at least in theory, eligible. They know who have who still have outstanding loans. They could say, like, did you earn under $125,000 last year? You can get your loans forgiven. I don't have a ton of confidence that will be done super well just based on prior track records, but I would really love to know what kind of, um, like, full-court press on this they're planning. It's interesting thinking about that also. I know we'll get to this later, but, like, just thinking about vaccines and and the government can and does when it wants to mobilize outreach and communication and runs ads on the radio and puts up billboards at bus stops and does all the and social media sponsored ads. And so it is interesting because they could do that with student loans. And yet I feel like they will. I would be pleasantly surprised if they did. And yet I, I feel like they'll do it based on if they think it will politically help them. I'm also realizing just now there are going to be so many scams around this. I was about oh to say what God. they need are like the Obama phone people. Like there were so many ads that were like, you can get a free cell phone on the internet for years. Like those are the people they need to do the student loan outreach. But Emily Stewart should be watching this. <laughs> this would be a good thing for her to write about in her newsletter. We have made some assignments from this podcast. Um, one other thing I'm just thinking about with this is like, what does this tell us about policy change and how policy change happens? And I think we've had not just with um, the student loan area, but arguably with the Inflation Reduction Act, too. We've had a very interesting month on, like, what kind of policy people always assumed was going to happen versus what was going to happen. So I'm going to commandeer us, put us in the weeds time machine for three minutes uh, and take us back to, like, when the student loan discourse started, which was – 2010 through 2012 was really when this burst onto the scene as a really significant policy issue. It was the middle of the Great Recession. It was the start of Occupy Wall Street. It was the start of a lot of organizing around debt and a lot of scrutiny on for-profit colleges in particular. Loan default rates, uh, which is what happens when you don't pay your loan for 270-something days and, like, really horrible things start happening to you because the education department can and will follow you to the ends of the earth in order to get that money back, um, were skyrocketing. There was a lot of concern about this. Out of this, like, three kind of separate policy strands came. One was the idea that, like, we should figure out what college degrees are, quote, unquote, worth it and try to, if not hold colleges accountable for that, at least communicate that information out to students and families. The second was the free college movement, the idea that tuition at state universities has gotten really unmanageable compared with previous generations, compared with the boomer generation that was then in power. What students were paying now is, um, you know, dramatically quite higher and more of the costs have been pushed onto them. And the third was loan forgiveness. For most of this time, those first two solutions seemed more likely than the others, just because, like, there's not a lot of history of just writing off loan debt by the federal government. Certainly not in the student loan context. But there have been state-federal partnerships around education, um, Medicaid rent, or Medicare rates, nursing homes. Like, there are there are places in the federal government that looks at, like, are we getting quality for value? And were there, like, people lobbying for those more likely-looking solutions? Yeah, so the um, the first sort of the, the, the quality rating idea, the idea that, like, we should be holding colleges accountable was, like, a very, very peak Obama-era technocratic idea. It had a lot of think tanks that were, like, very fond of it. I don't think there was a huge coalition of students and parents, like, out there for it. Free college obviously came um, really into the limelight during Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 primary campaign. Those two things also had something in common, which was who was lobbying against them, which was the existing higher education network. The first one obviously makes sense. Like, they were they did not love the idea that the federal government was going to try to say, like, that's a good college, that's a bad college. Free college, I think, is a little more obscure. Like, people 
don't realize that there actually was, even within the state colleges and universities who this like purported to help, a pretty strong pushback. They just really don't like the idea that the federal government could have more strings, more ways of getting involved. Um, it was not like an all-out, you know, outcry, but quietly and behind the scenes, colleges were really opposed to it. Debt forgiveness had a really, really excited activist community on the way that maybe free college did, but I mean, I don't even know if it did, you know, anything right. else did to that degree. Like, it, there was a lot of mobilization and thought going on around debt in, like, as a concept, college debt in particular. It's really interesting because I just, like, at any point in the last 10 years, if you'd said, like, what's most likely to come out of the student debt situation? Like, they're going to forgive a bunch of student debt is, like, the very logical, like, people are concerned about X, therefore we will do Y. But that's often not how policy change works. You know, I don't know what lesson to draw from that. And I'm really curious if, you know, what you think about it. No, I've been thinking about this a lot, too, because I remember after Ferguson and 2015 and, and when Black Lives Matter picked up, that sparked a much greater public conversation around fees and fines and municipal debt and sort of the way we police black Americans with, you know, traffic tickets and things like that. And then the Medicare for All mobilization in the next few years sparked such more conversation around medical debt. And I think the student debt activists have been really, really strategic in linking all of these conversations and drawing the connections. And then carceral debt emerged a lot during the pandemic. And so it's, I think, fascinating as you, I think, are getting it. Like, it started as this relative fringe movement that all these elite policymakers and scholars honestly mocked at and and treated as as not likely. And it wasn't likely then, but they have managed to be very sort of patient with these. The student debt strike, I think, was in 2015 was when it started. And then they just were taking all these little actions. And now they have this, they're making this nationwide, much broader conversation around debt was student debt starting it, but I'm I'm very, you know, impressed by the way that they've managed to connect it so broadly across so many issues. And I don't even know where it's going to go, but I feel like it, they, they responded by saying, you know, it's definitely not over or work is not done. And they're in a much stronger place than they were a decade ago. And so, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think if there's one thing I've learned from this, it's just really hard to tell where a policy issue is going to go once it gets started and gathers steam. Um, we have to take a break, but when we're back, we are going to talk about something else where no one knows where it's going to go, which is the economy. Delete, 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 delete. That's my break song. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back. We're going to talk next about what's going on with the economy, what's going on with inflation, and where things might go from here. So, Maddie, as we were talking about earlier with student loans, we're at this, you know, moment of historically, certainly for our lifetimes, um, high inflation. Where do things stand right now? Are things really getting better? Like when, what, what's happening? Tell me what's happening in the economy. Sure. So in July, inflation did slow down. So that is a pretty good sign. Um, we don't yet know if inflation has peaked. Um, people thought that it did earlier in the year, but then it picked back up. So that remains to be seen. But yes, we are seeing price growth start to slow down. According to the Consumer Price Index, prices are up 8.5% from a year ago, which is pretty high. Uh, The Federal Reserve usually targets around 2% inflation. Um, So it is much higher than what policymakers would like to see. So one thing I've realized, um, I think the pandemic, like gave all of us this idea that things are abnormal and then there is a normal and like someday we're all going to wake up and it's going to be December 2019 again and everything is going to be okay. And, you know, I think certainly in like kind of all areas of policy, it's like, all right, time only moves forward. Um, An assumption I didn't think through very much is that, oh, inflation is going to get under control and like I will stop having to pay X for whatever the price of it, you oh, know, just yeah. went up. Like, oh, the, I don't want to pay seven dollars for my yogurt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like the the five dollar normal cup of coffee someday will just like reset. And like, right. When I think about it, I feel like that's probably not how it works. Is this how it works? So inflation existed before the pandemic. I mean. The Fed does target 2% inflation, which means that prices grow at a 2% rate annually, meaning that over time, things get more expensive. So right now, the Fed is raising interest rates in order to get inflation under control. They're trying to bring that back down to the 2% level. That means that things will continue to get more expensive, but they won't shoot up in price like they are right now. So basically... Most things will not be as cheap as it was in 2019 um, or before the pandemic. But I've talked to, you know, several economists about this, and they say that for goods, a lot of goods that shot up in price during the pandemic, like exercise bikes or appliances, for instance, could see some price level declines. Um, So the amount that you pay for those items could go down. But for services, for instance, that's less likely to get any cheaper. So things like rent or food at restaurants are less likely to get cheaper because, employers have to pay for labor. And most employees are not willing to take wage cuts, which makes a lot of sense. Um, And so because of that, 
you know, the prices that you pay for services will probably just continue to increase um, and, and strain your budgets. So, I mean, all of that sounds really awful and kind of disheartening, but in normal times, your wage growth outpaces the rate of inflation. Um, we're not seeing that right now, which is why everything feels so expensive. Wages are up 5.2% from a year ago. And then if you look at CPI, prices are up 8.5% from a year ago. So obviously there is some gap there. So the hope is that even as prices for goods and services grow over time and become more expensive, your wage growth will outpace that rate of inflation. I saw an Intercept story. There was like a recording of the CEO calls and they were like, maybe a recession would be good for us because then employers would be able to, you know, have more control and, and cut wages. And, it, and like there is this like very uncomfortable back and forth of who, who wants to be in control. And I think something that I sort of wrestle with. I don't know if this is a common question, but when you were saying earlier about people wondering if inflation is peaked or not, when we talk about inflation, sometimes it feels like it's just this massive sprawling thing. I think of like an octopus and like all of its little tentacles are like increasingly hitting all these different sectors. And Are you thinking of the standard oil political cartoon from the 1890s with the giant octopus? Because that's exactly what I'm thinking of right now. <laughs> well, now I am. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> and, um, and so when we like inflation is getting worse and worse and I'm picturing like more and more sectors coming under like this inflation monsters control and then, you know, gas prices are falling. And then I wonder, OK, so does that then could we have just, you know, inflation in housing and, say, dining out sort of continuously, even as we see it go down in a bunch of other sectors? Is that a world that's a realistic possibility we might have for like the next for not forever, but <laughs> for um, time being, <laughs> I don't know about forever. Uh, I mean, I mean, we are already seeing that in the July CPI report. We did see gas prices did contribute to that sort of slowdown mm -hmm. in inflation, um, whereas rent, for instance, increased. So I think it's important to break down the overall inflation percentage mm -hmm. and take a look at the different categories in terms of where prices are growing and where prices are falling. Yeah, I think there's obviously something special about gas prices, both in the sense that, like, even if you don't drive, unless you live in parts of D.C. or other places where you don't see a ton of gas stations, like, there's a real ambient awareness of, like, what gas costs. Like, supermarkets don't put up usually right. a giant sign that's, like, eggs, and it tells you that's how much really the eggs point. cost. Though I kind of think they should now that I've said this. Um, but when I think no. about, you know, where, like, prices change quickly versus slowly and where they tend to stay static – I don't know if anyone else remembers the great lime shortage of 2014. No. I can't say okay. I do. I remember, <laughs> I remember this very clearly because it was right after Vox launched and we wrote like seven pieces. I literally just looked this up. We had an astonishing number of pieces about the lime shortage, which is what it sounds like. There was a lime shortage. Limes were like a dollar each for a while. Oh my God. I, I buy a lot of limes. It was bad. That would be upsetting to Yeah. <laughs> and every time I'm at the store, like years later, I'm like, oh, the limes are cheap now. And I, I, I regret to inform you that limes are once again expensive. But, you know, most things, it's not like, oh, my moisturizer is $40. It was $15 last week. And next week, it's going to be $20 again. Like most things just don't really go on that. Like the prices of most things are not that uneven. I think one question, like, politically about inflation is, like, what are people most sensitive to, right? I mean, this actually loops into our student debt conversation because, like, for most of my adult lifetime, um, which is basically since the beginning of the Great, Great Recession, the inflation that people have heard about and worried about is medical care, child care, education, like, all of these 
very like non-tangible goods that have to be provided in person and the, the efficiencies that you can get with technology and such are very small. It's actually very weird to just be having a like straight commodity, like, man, shirts are pricey now type of inflation. I don't know if there's a lot of information beyond, you know, gas prices on what consumers are most sensitive to, but where are some places where, you know, prices might be falling that that people would see? I'm trying, you know, trying to get a sense of like, if you're really worried about inflation, how are you going to feel in a month or two? I mean, you're right to point out that things like gas prices and food prices are more volatile. I think that obviously prices for essential items, consumers really feel any sorts of changes there. Um, So gas prices, food at the grocery store, their rent, how much they're paying for housing. Yeah, I I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on on housing prices. We should probably do a whole episode on housing prices. But that seems like one where it's just really, it's really hard to get under control. And it's like very obvious, like everyone knows what their rent is or what their mortgage is. It's it's hard to get away from, not in the way maybe the gas is, but maybe in like a more long-term way. We're going to have to take a break there. And when we get back, we will celebrate the return of school by talking again about education, but at the younger end. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Welcome back. So we've talked about student loans. We've talked about the economy. Let's talk about the other, you know, big thing that's dominated a lot of the news over the past couple of years, which is COVID, how we're dealing with it, and how we're dealing with it in schools in particular. Um, Schools across the country are going back, you know, starting a week or two ago through Labor Day. What's mostly happening, Rachel, in schools at at the local level? What does this year look like compared to the past two? Yeah, it's back to school time, and this year definitely looks different from previous school years for a couple of reasons. I think going back to school last year, if you can stretch your mind back, the Delta wave really started in late July. So last early summer, you know, people thought back to school would be very normal. It was like that post-double-vax beautiful period of life. (laughs) Um, And then Delta came late July, and August sort of scrambled everyone's back-to-school plans, and suddenly people were really scared about Delta. I remember I was going to a wedding, and the week before, like, 40 people over the age of 65 dropped out. (laughs) Um, And so this year, it's different because even though we are still, even though COVID is still around, there is much less panic and uncertainty from most people. Obviously, there's still concerns, but one of the biggest things that we're seeing is Schools, by and large, across the country are not having mask requirements. Overwhelming majority of schools have gone mask optional. There are now vaccines available for all the age groups. And unlike last year, the vaccines are now fully approved for students ages 12 and up. Now, the vaccination rates are much lower than maybe people thought they would be a year ago. I checked it this morning, and for 12 to 17-year-olds, 61% of people are fully vaccinated. For 5 to 11-year-olds, it's only 30%. 
That's that such a steep drop off. I that's such a steep. I wonder if it's because of the high school activities and sports that did have requirements, or just the full approval of the vaccines for that age group. That's a really big, big gap. Yeah, it is a big gap. The twelve to seventeen year old vaccines were authorized at the start of last school year. So like August 2021 was when older teens could start to get it. And there was more sort of pressure to get it because you wanted to go to things like prom and, and school trips and things like that. But then I think what also happened is over the course of the 2021-2022 school year, political pressure from all quarters, from teacher unions, from parents, from school administrators, from national public health agencies to really push student vaccines went down. And so as more vaccines became available for more age groups, there were not the kind of constituencies pushing for mandates for students. Basically, every group recommends it. They say, you know, it's a good thing to do. But there's you do not see, you know, teacher unions saying we're going to strike if you don't do this. You're not seeing parents really lining up at school board meetings, demanding school districts issue requirements for vaccination. And all of these things were not, it was not clear a year ago that this was how it was going to look or or play out. I feel like that's a a theme we're hitting today. (laughs) The future is hard to know. Um, Is it too much to hope for that they're, you know, they've relaxed on masks and also not gone hard on vaccines because everyone has good ventilation now? So some of the reason also is that by the Omicron wave, by the end of February, it was estimated that three in four kids in the country had already gotten COVID. We knew that kids can catch COVID, kids can spread COVID. We knew kids were at less risk for severe illness. But before vaccines, there was a lot of fear about kids catching COVID and giving COVID to teachers or to their parents or their grandparents. And after vaccines were available, there was sort of a lot more societal tolerance for saying, well, like, yes, that risk is still there. But if they can get vaccinated and protect themselves, like we've just really adopted this individual responsibility thing in our society. And so I think there's just been a lot less fear and sort of ethical guilt about the risk of potentially a kid bringing COVID home than there was. And then to your question about ventilation, the answer is uh, not really. (laughs) Uh, The CDC put out a study in June and found under 40 percent of American schools had replaced or upgraded their HVAC systems for improved ventilation. And most schools did these lower cost strategies like opening windows or, you know, relooking at their air conditioning or opening doors or relocating outside. It doesn't really seem like there's even that much momentum this school year to like have classes outdoors. Last summer, there was much more discussion about like, maybe we can do it out- outdoors when it's nice out. And, and this year, I don't think that's a big push from parents or teachers or, you know, students. So, Rachel, I'm wondering, schools received, I think, about $122 billion in American Rescue Plan funding to help districts reopen um, and address learning loss. And so I'm wondering, how are they spending that money? Are they using that those funds to help in terms of reopening at all? Yeah. So the grand total of now from the three tranches of funding actually hit $190 billion for public and private schools. So maybe your number was for public schools. Um, the vast majority going to public school districts. So there was this sort of narrative I saw a lot a couple months ago, maybe six months ago, sort of suggesting that, you know, school districts just didn't spend the money. They lost the money. There's no accounting for the money. Chalkbeat did some really good reporting on this question. And, and a lot of the reason this 
sort of perception exists is because the way states track individual school districts varies so greatly. And there's a huge lag in the time in which the federal education department then collects whatever state data is collected. So there was an article I read in February 2022 about this and the federal education department's data on how districts have been spending COVID money hadn't been updated since September 2021. So that's, you know, a a big lag. And Guys, I think the education department (laughs) might have some data issues. I feel like we have some emerging themes from (laughs) some surprising themes linking our conversations today. That is a good point. Um, I think by and large, what people who've who've looked more closely into this question is, you know, there are 13,000 school districts All 13,000 school districts have been spending their COVID money differently. Most school districts, it seems, have been spending it on things like mitigation, hiring, tutoring, upgrades. You know, there have been a couple anecdotal scandalous things that, like, make headlines. But the people who have crunched the numbers say those are very much outliers. The school districts are supposed to spend it by 2025. But in May, the education department said, for schools that want to use this funding to do infrastructure upgrades, we're going to give you an extra year probably because there was supply chain issues. So I'd say there seems to be great quality differentials in how states record things, report things. It's not like schools are just sitting on it. Sometimes what happens also is if you use the money to hire someone, you don't spend that money all at once. You pay that person, you know, over the course of a year or two years or however long they're working for you. So if it looks like they're not spending down the money, it could be because that money is is a salary. Um, anyway, it is a ton of money, though. And, you know, there are deadlines coming up on, on when they have to spend it by. It's interesting because we didn't really want to get into sort of catching up students from the past couple of years. But, like, one thing we seem to know about interventions that help students who've fallen behind, which is a way higher share than normal, is that they're, like, very expensive. Um, and so it does seem like they should find a way to, to do that. At the same time, it also seems like the expanded funding is, is playing a role in sort of the confusion over do we have a teacher shortage and, and where is it? Because one of the things that's happening, one of the reasons we're seeing vacancies is that districts have created jobs and haven't been able to fill them. Um, there's a yeah. lot of, you know, dissatisfaction in the teaching core. And as we were saying, there's a really strong labor market. Like, if you can be a tutor after school or you can, you know, get way more than you were expecting to get at a job that's yeah. a little less demanding, like, or, or that you might, you know, enjoy more, like, people are often taking that other option. A hundred percent. Finding staff for tutoring, for child care, for lots of support staff, just the kind of positions that really help make schools run, but those workers are seeing slightly easier and more room uh, lucrative options elsewhere and and you're right and it it makes i mean we've we've covered the the school staffing issue a bit um at vox but i think i think it's just a really underrated issue that people sort of were very was discounted in the open schools conversation we thought you know you go back to school and then schools would act like they were in 2018 2019 but (laughs) it's a different environment Yeah, I want to come back really quickly to the vaccination requirements, too. I mean, I think the the lack of that is really a a pretty startling development. And it's interesting because we're we're here in D.C., which is like the only large district in the country that's trying. And I can say certainly anecdotally, there is so much confusion about what's going on with the requirement. I was talking to a neighbor who's a teacher, a longtime teacher in a charter school, and she said she's teaching in a mask this year. And I said, you know, I'm surprised you guys are still requiring that. And she said, oh, I think that vaccine requirement is only for the public schools. I don't think it's for the charter schools. And I was like, I actually don't think that's true. But it's surprisingly hard to notice this. And, like, if the well-informed, you know, 
engaged, smart staff at their schools are not right. aware of what's being required. I am really concerned about what we're actually going to see about uptake, you know, going forward. No, I totally agree. There, was, I passed a bus billboard sign encouraging people to get their vaccinations for back to school. But at the bottom, it was like, and we encourage you to stay up to date on your COVID vaccines. And I'm thinking, you literally have a law requiring this. You are telling reporters that you're going to keep kids out of school if they don't get it after 20 school days. So why are you saying on this billboard that you recommend it? I, it just, it's very confusing. Yeah, and the reason, the reason this is all speculative for listeners elsewhere in the country is that D.C. is not back in school yet, so it's going to be a little bit before we can see if this works. But, um, you know, I think we're about to have a, a crash course in if you say there's a mandate, but you don't say that loudly there's a mandate, and, like, how much are you going to enforce the mandate? Uh, does the mandate actually have any teeth? The way that D.C. has taken it, which I think is something school districts nationwide are also grappling with, is students really fell behind on their other routine immunizations over the course of the pandemic, and as we are now dealing with polio headlines from New York and, you know, as we're also talking about monkeypox. And I feel like we're in this environment right now where there's a lot of confusing and conflicting messages around vaccines coming and people worried about coming off too strong, but then wondering what it might if it might have spillover effects on other vaccines. And like it does really worry me. I don't feel particularly great about where we're at right now and how we're talking about vaccines. Yeah, I think there's a uh, there's just a lot of concern really around the world um, and, and in the U.S. about what the past two years have meant for vaccine coverage. And that's not a great time to have polio reemerging. No. I think, like, nope. we can all agree we would all prefer not to be in this timeline um, and, and not to maybe find out in real time what happens right. if, yeah. you, if you have a community that's undervaccinated. Our theme of it's hard to predict what happens <laughs> for this chapter, I really don't love, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to predict what happens. It could be really bad. <laughs> That's all for us today. <laughs> I don't see a better place to end it. That's all for us today. Thank you to Rachel Cohen and Madeline Yeo for joining the panel. Our producer and engineer is Sophie Lalonde. Additional engineering help from Jonquil and Hill. And I'm your host for today, Libby Nelson. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We kind of did. <laughs> I would say we frequently end on a gloomy note, and this time we were like, everyone's going to get polio. Have a fun day. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.